You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm David McKechnie. The first UN summit on refugees and migrants took place in New York this week, just as the latest efforts to reach a lasting ceasefire and halt Syria's bloody six-year war were falling apart. A declaration adopted by the UN's 193 nations at the summit contains many noble if abstract aims, but few hold out hope that it will halt the worst crisis of forced displacement in Europe since the Second World War. Meanwhile, attempts to process asylum applications at migration hotspots in southern Europe and resettle refugees around the continent have been painfully slow. So far, few refugees have arrived in notionally committed countries such as Ireland. Why is this the case? Foreign Affairs correspondent Ruan McCormick is here to explain the issues. Later on, our Berlin correspondent Derek Scally will look at the toll the migration crisis has taken on Angela Merkel's chancellorship, including a series of damaging defeats in local elections that have seen substantial gains for the right-wing populist Alternative for Deutschland party. With federal elections due next year, we ask whether her handling of the crisis will prove fatal to Merkel's career and the election hopes of her Christian Democratic Union party. But first, in September 2015, the European Commission appeared to have finally made some headway in its bid to share out responsibility for refugees when it announced a plan to relocate 160,000 asylum seekers from Italy and Greece around the bloc. This move was accelerated partly in response to a public outcry after pictures travelled around the world of the body of a Syrian toddler washed up on a Turkish beach. However, a year on and only about 5,000 of those 160,000 places have been taken up, including a mere 69 out of a commitment by Ireland to take 2,600 people under the scheme. I'm joined in the studio by Ruan McCormick. Ruan, Ireland is committed, I think, to taking in 4,000 refugees in total, a number that has in itself been criticised as too low in the context of the burden on some countries. Why have so far so few arrived? Well, what happened was, as you say, there was this outcry last year after these images circulated the world, after you had the biggest mass movement of people into the European Union since the Second World War, principally as a result of the Syrian civil war. And so there were two crisis meetings of the European Commission, or rather the European Council, and proposals from the Commission were adopted under which, as you say, 160,000 asylum seekers or refugees would be accepted into countries around Europe. as, as of now, only 5,000 of those asylum seekers have actually made it to other European countries. In the case of Ireland, Ireland under the relocation programme committed to two, taking in 2,600 people. So far, it's only taken in 69, all of them Syrians. So there's a long way to go, as you say. The principal reason seems to be that there are delays in processing people in these so-called hotspots in Italy and Greece. The reason Ireland says it has taken in no asylum seekers from Italy is there seems to be a, a disagreement of some sort between the authorities in Ireland and in Italy over the screening or assessment process that people go through in Italy in these hotspots. Um, so the Irish authorities are saying we want a member of Ancarda Siachana to be on site and to, to look at the applications as they're being decided on. And the Italians say, well, we can't have members of the police from every country in Europe standing in, in the office looking through the applications. And so there's a disagreement on on that sort of assessment and, and clearance procedure. So it's a bureaucratic logjam, essentially. Um, initially, the problem was that this problem was compounded by the fact that relatively few Syrians, for example, were actually registering for the relocation program because many of them thought, well, it's just as easy for me to head north to make my way towards Austria or Germany or Sweden. That has become much more difficult in the last couple of months because the northern northern border of Greece 
uh, has been in effect closed, it's much more difficult. You can still make it with the use of smugglers and so on, but it's more expensive, it's more dangerous, and it's more arduous. So you are getting more uh, Syrians, if we're talking about Syrians here, you're getting more people registering at the hotspots, but those bureaucratic delays are still there, and I think that's principally what's hampering the effort. It seems extraordinary that with, with so much effort into into organising and, and putting in place this plan that some of those that bureaucratic logjam wasn't foreseen. I, I think that's fair enough. Um, what the European Commission and what different countries say is that, look, relocation is a complex business. Uh, physically trying to move so many people in such a short space of time is a big task. Even even in, in normal times, it's quite difficult to organise. Um, you're seeing far bigger numbers of people making their way to the West, um, not just to Europe, but to the US and Canada as well, through the resettlement program. And that's different from relocation. It's organized by the UN Refugee Agency. It's been running for decades. Uh, it applies to a much bigger part of the world than just um, Italy and Greece. And what happens there is, let's say you've got large numbers of people in a refugee camp, whether it's in Syrians in Lebanon and Jordan, or uh, Burmese uh, refugees on the Thai-Burmese border in refugee camps run by the UN Refugee Agency. What happens there is that the UN Refugee Agency certifies as to their status as refugees. So most of the paperwork and assessment is done on the ground uh, in refugee camps or, or uh, you know, where they, they, they first arrive. And then they're accepted by the host country, let's say Ireland. They arrive and they, they are refugees the minute they arrive in Ireland. And so under that scheme, for example, you've got 40,000 people have gone to the US, uh, I think about 30,000 have gone to Canada. Um, in all, you, you have about, uh, I think, 800,000, if I'm not wrong, who've gone since the beginning of the Syrian civil war, Syrians who've gone elsewhere in the world. Um, now, that's still much lower than the need. So, for example, the UN Refugee Agency says that in 2017, the global need uh, in other words, the number of Syrians who are going to have to be accommodated elsewhere is 1.19 million people. That's just for 2017 alone. Um, so you can see there's still a big gap, even in resettlement, there's a big gap between the need and the actual number of places provided. I guess people will be thinking, as you say, that in, in light of, of the number displaced, um, that if Europe can't sort out its act on 160,000 people, what, what chance do we have of finding a more substantial long-term solution to this, to this crisis? I think that's a, a valid point, and, and there are lots of ways in which this could get worse. Um, the agreement uh, struck between the European Union and Turkey, for example, has reduced the flow of people making their way from uh, Turkey to Europe. Some people were looking out for signs since the attempted coup in Turkey, signs that maybe the enforcement mechanism on the Turkish side might have grown a bit more lax and that you might have more people making their way towards uh, Greece. I spoke to uh, the head of the UNHCR office in Athens last week and he said so far there's no sign that that's happening. But that's one example of where the problem could be compounded by changes in the environment on the ground, changes in the sort of geopolitical picture uh, in, in, in that part of the world. Um, let's not forget as well that while there are fewer people coming to Europe, there are still very large numbers of people making their way to Turkey, to Lebanon, to Jordan. And those states, far more than any European country, are really at the coalface um, of uh, this vast uh, uh, wave of Syrian refugees who've had to flee uh, their country in the last year or two. I know Francis Fitzgerald spoke yesterday, um, hopefully about getting more, having more uh, refugees here in the in the short term. Um, is there a sense that that there's progress being made on, on that bureaucratic logjam, or or what needs to be done to sort of 
Is it is it resources or is it is it sort of uh, just sheer bureaucracy? It's it's a bureaucratic problem um, above all. If you listen to what the Department of Justice here in Ireland is saying, what they also say, however, is that they are making progress, at least on the Greek. Uh, side, that they've been having direct discussions with the Greeks, that they expect to take in between 60 and 80 people per month from now on, having got over various um, bureaucratic problems that they had encountered. Um, but we'll see whether that's the case. Um, of the uh, of the 2,500, as we say, only 69 have arrived so far. So there's still a huge way to go before we even begin to get near the target for uh, this year and next. How many are we prepared to take at this stage? I mean, if the if the target is is two thousand six hundred on that scheme alone, or, or how many how many could we take in in the next year or so? Well, last September, when these um, European meetings were were going on, Ireland set a figure of four thousand. Um, that's two thousand six hundred, I think, is the the figure for under uh, under relocation. That's from the hotspots in Greece and Italy. A further five hundred and sixty under resettlement. They'll mostly come from. Lebanon and Jordan, I understand. And then they didn't explain how the remainder will be accommodated, where they will come from, under what scheme they will come to Ireland. Um, I don't expect that you'll see them increase that figure until they get closer to actually meeting it in the first place. Uh, and I think you'll learn a lot over the next few months as to whether they really have got over these problems and whether they actually are going to make progress in reaching that target by the end of 2017. In terms of, of the uh, situation on the ground uh, at those hotspots in Greece, I, as you say, you spoke to somebody in Athens recently. Uh, is, is there a, is, are, are, how are conditions there at the moment? And is there is there more optimism? Conditions very much depend on, on the location. So the UNHCR, for example, has a scheme where they're accommodating some people in, in apartments, in, in private accommodation around Greece. You know, if you're in that situation as a, a refugee, your conditions are comparatively good. But there are many, many camps uh, across Greece where conditions are really atrocious. Um, we saw only last night that there was a fire at a, at a camp in Greece that required about 4,000 people to flee in the middle of the night. They're cramped, sanitary conditions are poor, uh, they're overcrowded, uh, you've got families living in, in really unsuitable conditions, um, in particular in the north of Greece where people were making their way before the border closed. You still have a flow making its way towards that northern Greek border. In particular there, I'm told, conditions are really, really, really bad. They're doing, they're putting a lot of effort into these hotspots. They're trying to uh, speed up the flow of people uh, to get over these bureaucratic logjams we, we speak about. But clearly, the longer people are in that system, the more desperate their situation becomes. Sure. Well, other than the obvious solution of halting the war in Syria, is, is there any anything else that that, that that can be done to improve the, the situation in the short term and in the, in the medium term? I think the priority is ensuring that, if we're talking about relocation, the priority is ensuring that those who are now in Greece uh, can avail of, of the relocation scheme. So, for example, if we take Ireland, for example, as of today, uh, Ireland has said it has space in the country, it has accommodation for 273 people, and it, is, it has said this to the UNHCR. Um, so far, in this, in the last 12 months, only 69 people have come. So that's a, a clear example of where, you know, once you uh, begin to put in place a, a system that's working in the hotspots, people can move pretty quickly. What you want to see is that figure of 273 increasing, 
and um, at the same time, the flow of people coming out of these hotspots in Greece as well. That'll relieve a lot of pressure on Greece. It'll relieve, in time, hopefully it'll relieve a lot of pressure on the Italians as well. But remember too that both of these countries are also dealing with, a, we're only talking about the Aegean route, the route from Turkey to uh, Greece and Italy. There's also the Mediterranean route. And we're, we've seen in the last six weeks, two months, as the weather, weather improved, that that flow from North Africa has increased uh, at, a, at, a, at a brisk rate as well. So these countries aren't only dealing with the flow from Turkey, they're dealing with the flow from, from North Africa as well. So for both Greece and Italy, it doesn't look like the situation is going to become any better anytime soon. Ruin McCormick, thank you. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. In Germany, the arrival of more than a million migrants last year and a number of criminal and terrorist incidents since have ratcheted up the pressure on Chancellor Angela Merkel, particularly in light of her now notorious decision to open the doors to migrants a year ago. Recent local election results have seen her CDU party suffer and the right-wing AFD party surge. Derek Scally, Merkel appeared to change tone this week with her admission that she would like to turn the clock back on her migration strategy. It came a day after her party finished six points down in Berlin elections. Was that a wake-up call or had she been planning to tone down that bullish attitude of hers for some time? I think I think it was both, really. I mean, many people in her inner circle had said, we actually need to start toning things down because the mood has really turned toxic. Um, as you said, uh, a million people came last year. And of course, back then, the story, the narrative was, um, as you said, wir schaffen das, we'll manage this. And there was images of... Uh, from Munich train station of people, volunteers welcoming these exhausted refugees coming from Syria and elsewhere. And then we had a series of events starting in Cologne with some um, sexual assaults on women on New Year's Eve, um, including some uh, asylum seekers involved in there, though not exclusively. And then there have been attacks in Bavaria. So the mood was really starting to turn toxic. And some of her close allies were saying, we really need to get a handle on this because this far right uh, alternative for Deutschland party, alternative for Germany, they had been sort of flagging in polls. They started life as a Euro, anti-Euro, anti-bailout party. They were really starting to disappear. But then the migration crisis really revitalized them and they started peeling away votes from Merkel's party. So the alarm bells had started during the summer um, because although numbers have dropped, uh, there was a million last year, there's still 300,000 this year. So this notion that Germany can manage this, everyone was starting to ask Merkel, well, how? How we, We've managed to house them for a year, but how on earth are we going to integrate a million, 1.3 million people? So the elections, we had uh, election two weeks ago uh, in the state of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, that's in northeastern Germany, that's Merkel's home state. And we also have an election in Berlin. So these are state elections. This has nothing to do with Angela Merkel's federal politics. These are state elections. Germany has 16 federal states. And these elections, you know, depending on your mood, uh, are or aren't sort of a barometer of sort of general public mood. And everyone seems to have agreed that by battering the CDU, Angela Merkel's party voters were basically voting. Uh, it was a referendum against Merkel's uh, migrant policy. And so that seems to be why she came out yesterday and she delivered. It was a very, very carefully um, calibrated sort of, I'm sorry if you felt something apology, you know, sort of something you often hear coming from the Vatican. Um, so she said, if I could, I would turn back time to be better prepare myself for what happened last year but she said what she did was right and um, so she said nobody wants a repeat of what happened last year but she defended what she did and she also said and this is crucial she said 
uh, Germany will continue to stand by its international obligations um, that if somebody comes here fleeing a war zone seeking asylum, Germany will continue to accept them. So it was a, a sort of a it was a it was a sort of a peace offering to her conservative, scared conservative allies, and it was also sort of throwing down the gauntlet to this uh, alternative for Deutschland party that's trying to. Uh, manipulate public fears over the migration crisis to boost their own political support. What is the attitude uh, generally on the, on the streets right now to migrants? Is it, is it, would it be going too far to say that it's tense or, or is, it, is it just merely that, that people want to change in strategy by, by the government? I think it's it really, when you look at polls, opinion is really divided right down the middle. Half of the society really says, well, look at what we've achieved. This is extraordinary. Who else in, in Europe could manage what we've done without social order breaking down? And then the other half is sort of, feeling that, well, why are they getting everything? And, you know, just the rare, the general fear of the other. And that has been quite successfully growing since um, since the attacks in Cologne and since the terror attacks in, in Bavaria. And many people fear that uh, if IS plan and execute some big, big terrorist attack, and Germany really has been spared something on the lines of what Paris has gone through. If something like that happened in Berlin, probably the mood would darken even further than it has been. There have been attacks, quite significant attacks, uh, hundreds of attacks on asylum seeker homes um, over 170 last year. And that record was broken in June of this year. So the mood is very fragile. And uh, we've got a year now before Angela Merkel herself faces re-election. So I think the Berlin election, while it was only a small regional poll, two and a half million people voting, uh, which is obviously a drop in the bucket given Germany's 82 million. I think she's basically saying, right, the clock is ticking now and I have to begin the fight back to try and win back public support if I want to win a fourth term next year. Sure. I mean, is there a sense that that, that the resettlement and, and rehousing has overall been a success of, of asylum seekers? Obviously, it's such a, a vast number of people and, and a relatively small number of instances. Yes, but at this stage, it's more about movement. I mean, the number of people, number of asylum seekers involved in criminal activity or involved in violence is statistically insignificant. But uh, emotionally, it is significant because people here are feeling that Germany has perhaps been left holding the baby or one million babies, one million people who came last year. And the feeling of betrayal that other countries in Europe are sitting on their hands and saying, good on you, Germany, keep up the good work. By the way, we're not taking anybody. So there's a sense of sort of were we were we wise, were we actually naive to expect others to join us in taking in people last year? And so there's that sort of sense, there's a dangerous sort of political feeling that we were, Germans were had because nobody else in Europe, apart from, let's say, Sweden and Austria have taken significant numbers. And then, of course, there's, there's the Greeks and the Italians on the front line. So there's definitely sort of a, a feeling of were we wise or were we actually naive and has that naivety, will that come back to haunt us? And I think that's, that's the dangerous point we are at the, at the moment in Germany. Yeah, as you said, the AFD have been, been catching in on that, on those attitudes a little bit. How 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 have they managed to do that um, so far? They've done really just by um, sort of it's a mixture of populism. Um, we have simple answers to a complex situation. Vote for us, and we'll deliver on these answers. And also, they've just very carefully um, they've just found sort of a. a sort of a socially acceptable way of of, re, of selling xenophobia in the 21st century. And, you know, these people were just not sure about them. We were not sure if they belonged to us. Just basically the, the, the fear of the other. They've sort of found a, a new way of, uh, you know, new wine in old barrel, in, in old bottles. And, um, and they've managed to pull in everything from, let's say, neo-Nazis and far-right people to sort of concerned 
what I call prosperity chauvinists, people who actually are quite comfortable in Germany, but they're afraid of somebody somewhere might be taking something from them or might be ogling their daughter. So there's sort of a latent fear there that they've quite successfully tapped into. And they've just proven that Germany um, is not uh, not um, immune to this. We've seen this happening for years now in Austria. It's growing in in um, France. But what they've also done is, of course, what they've done in France and the Netherlands and Austria, which is tapping into an anti-establishment sort of Trump-style politics. They've done that quite seriously. That's why they're called alternative for Germany, that we are the alternative. The rest of the parties are old, tired, and uh, Germany needs needs fresh ideas, and we are the party to deliver them. Is there is there a robust debate going on about about you know the, where where Germany um, sits in terms of its you know obviously it's it's historically quite a lot of issues in terms of the rise of rise of right wing parties um, is 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 that being discussed at a, a national level a lot the trouble is that it's um for so long, Germany, Germans felt that they were immune to a lot of this because of the Second World War. That actually, the, the debates were almost considered they've been over, they've been won, they've been there was no need to debate about this. So, when you have a party like the AfD coming in, what you actually see is it triggers sort of an allergic reaction in people here. So you, there's an awful lot of um, snapping back at the AfD rather than deconstructing their arguments. For instance, Michael Müller, who's the mayor of Berlin, Social Democrat, last week he actually urged people not to stand back and watch the AfD take a double-digit um, support. In the end, the AfD got 14%. And he said this would be a disastrous signal because the Nazis started their rise in Germany and this would uh, such a success for the AfD would be considered in, internationally as another rise of Nazism in Germany, which... Um, it was kind of backfired on him because the AFD turned around on Sunday evening and they said, so is the mayor of Berlin saying everyone who voted for us is a Nazi? And and that's how they're quite cleverly turning things around. So Germany has spent six decades debating fascism and, and Hitler and dictatorships, but it's actually surprising when somebody comes along even just tapping into certain resentments that uh, have a history in Germany, how un- incapable many people are of dealing with them on a factual, on a calm, on a political content level. And I think that's the, the Achilles heel that the AfD is attacking. Yeah, I suppose from the outside, people have, have a perception of Berlin as, as being a city that a party like the AfD could never get any kind of hold on, you know. So it seems kind of remarkable from an outside perspective. Well, they, well it is uh, in certain respects. But on the other hand, Germany has gone through, um, and the, people look at Germany now and they see a booming country. But in a city like Berlin, it's actually quite a poor city. Um, one in five people here lives in poverty. And the last 10 years, while on paper Germany economically has been a, a powerhouse, and um, this has been on the back of quite dramatic, drastic social um, and economic reforms uh, in 2004, 2005. And while they may have restarted the economy, they've created sort of a, a sense of a new uh, precarious working poor. And the AFD is actually appealing to them as well. So it's a classic populist right-left party. It's socially conservative, but uh, sort of welfare and um, it offers a, to, to left-wing voters, it's presenting itself as a classic um a party of the left. So uh, in some respects, in a strict political science sense, um, there are parallels to what was going on in Germany in the 1930s. The National Socialist Party, they sold nationalism and they brought socialism in as part of the mix. And so they appealed right across the political spectrum. I think the AFD is a, a long, 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 long way, way away from anything like what happened in Germany in the 30s. But they've proven that once again in Germany, you can be a conservative party with a socialist um, we're going to look after the little guy 
branding. And that seems to work quite well, particularly in, in a poor city like Berlin. Sure. Now, you've written, you've written about how the result in Berlin appeared to throw up the possibility of uh, Merkel's Social Democrat coalition allies forming a three-way coalition with the Greens and the Link LF party in the, uh, in the federal election. How, how likely is this? And, and, and is, is that great danger for, for Angela Merkel? Well, it's 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 all in the stars at the moment. Basically, until now, Angela Merkel looked like the woman with all the options. She's in she's been in party power with almost half of Germany's political parties, and the idea was that next year she might take a new partner, the Greens, um, and this would be sort of a, a new a new departure for German politics. But and the Greens have always traditionally been with the Social Democrats. Gerhard Schröder, who was in power before Merkel, he was in power with the Greens. But the Greens and the Social Democrats don't have enough votes now in opinion polls to take back power. So they'd need a third party. And the left party, which is the successor to the East German ruling party, they would be, the, the on paper at least, the, the likely ally. But of course, um, the East German socialists, communists um, have a, a burdened history for many people. And for the Social Democrats, um, they say, well, these, you know, these old East Germaners, they, um, you know, they're, they're pacifists. They don't want this Germany to be in NATO. A lot of foreign policy uh, things are just not compatible. And also they want us to roll back all of the economic reforms that, while painful, do seem to restore Germany's economic strength. So there seems to be an awful lot of sort of old baggage, but also new policy baggage from economic reforms to NATO before these three parties could work together. But on the other hand, um, by coming out after yesterday's election, when Merkel really was looking weak, and uh, the Social Democrats really did decide to put a cat among the pigeons by saying, well, perhaps we could work through our differences and come up with this three-way coalition next year as a way of sort of offering voters uh, who are tired of Angela Merkel sort of a, an anti-Merkel alternative. So um, it may just be talk at the moment, but there have been contacts between these three parties, anxious to see if there's a way of bridging past uh, feeling of past wrongs and actually putting together some sort of a centre-left coalition in Germany. At the moment, it's just talk. Um, it may this this kind of coalition will come together probably in Berlin at state level, but at federal level, Angela Merkel's level, I think we're still some way off. But the fact that they're talking about it does seem to signal that um, we've entered election season in Germany, and the next twelve months could be quite interesting indeed. Sure. Finally, Derek, how tarnished is, is the formidable uh, Merkel brand and, and is there any possibility she'll be replaced uh, by, in the CDU? Yeah, I wouldn't really write her off yet. I mean, obviously, looking back at the, the most obvious comparison was Margaret Thatcher, who was sort of very strong until she was suddenly gone. And um, suddenly, you know, the woman who had no replacement, suddenly John Major was in the job, the most unlikely prime minister. And it seems to be a similar situation here. There are several people who would consider themselves the best uh, alternative to Merkel in the party, but none of them really have ever um, showed any gumption, have ever really come out and attacked her or said, we think our party is going in the wrong direction. Angela Merkel really has she is the figurehead of the party and there really isn't much after Angela Merkel. So the CDU is worried that they really can't win elections anymore without Merkel. And many of these politicians who might consider themselves a good alternative to Merkel have yet to come out of the long grass. I mean, it, it speaks volumes uh, that the, the most common name we hear now is Wolfgang Schäuble. The man will be 75 next year if he's the fresh face, uh, the fresh faced alternative to Angela Merkel. I think that says all you need to know about the succession stakes, at least for the moment, uh, when it comes to finding the next uh, leader after Angela Merkel. Derek Scally in Berlin, thank you. Thanks to today's contributors, Ruan McCormick and Derek Scally. 
Thanks also to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and producer Declan Conlon. I'm Dave McKechnie. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Thank you.